And I like, as that said in the, that song that we just sang, <clears throat> that it's the grace of God that has brought me safe thus far, and it is the grace of God that will lead me home, which is what we were talking about this morning. The grace of God that saves us, the grace of God that preserves us, and the grace of God that will ultimately glorify us on the day of Christ. It is all by the sheer kindness and mercy of God that we are what we are. Proverbs 21, Proverbs 21, and this chapter, we're just breaking up. Typically, we do it into halves, but this time we're doing this one into thirds, mostly because of some of the verses last week. Um, So today we'll do 10 more verses. We'll start in verse 11, and we'll read to verse 20. Proverbs 21, verse 11 says, When the scoffer is punished, the naive becomes wise. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked, turning the wicked to ruin. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. A gift in secret subdues anger, and a bribe in the bosom strong wrath. The exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but is terror to the workers of iniquity. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man, and he who loves wine and oil will not become rich. The wicked is a ransom for the righteous, and the treacherous is in the place of the upright. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we ask, Lord, that you might, again, graciously, Lord, impart to us your very wisdom, Lord, that you might grant to us even a greater faith, increase our faith, Lord, as we read and study from your word, and we pray that we incorporate these things, Lord, not only into our mind, not so that we might have some bare knowledge of the truth, but into our very lives, Lord, that we might have an experiential or a practical knowledge of your wisdom, bearing itself out in the way that we live before you. So, Lord, may you increase our faith and cause us to live by faith, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Proverbs 21, verse 11 says, When the scoffer is punished, the naive becomes wise, but when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. Here, the scoffer being the wicked man, and in this society, in this present world, there are times when scoffers, when those who behave and live godless, wicked lives, and they commit crimes that are worthy of punishment, worthy of some kind of, of, of censorship or punishment or execution in this present life. When that happens, even those who are naive, who do not have any wisdom, even they are able to become wise. They are able to do certain things or to not do certain things. It is the putting away of sin in what they are naturally compelled to do, right? Because in the hearts of men, in the hearts of the wicked, there resides every lust, every sin, everything imaginable. But why is it that all men do not act upon all of these lusts and desires. In every man there is murder. In every man there is adultery. In every man there is perjury and theft and all of these sins that they might commit in society. And yet, not every man goes out and actually commits murder. Not every man goes out and commits all of these kinds of gross sins. 
And that is because when there is proper punishment. When the scoffer is punished, even the naive man who has no wisdom, even he becomes wise in his actions. In that, he does not commit these same kinds of sins, not out of good, not because he's wanting to live his life to the glory of God, but simply because he doesn't want to go to prison, he doesn't want to get a public beating, not that they do that today, Uh, but in times past they did, Jamestown, they used to do that, right? We need to bring back some of these laws, right? He doesn't want to be executed, though again, it's very rare, but still there are times when that happens and there are people who will not act upon the evil lusts that are within their heart simply because they don't want to face the punishment. And this is true even of the godless. But when there is a wise man, a true believer, and he sees these things, when he hears these kinds of instruction, he becomes wiser still. He gains more knowledge in doing the will of God and in incorporating it into his faith so that he lives his life for the glory of God. In chapter 19, verse 25, 19.25 says, Strike a scoffer, and the naive may become shrewd. But reprove one who has understanding, and he will gain knowledge. Again, there is this twofold type of knowledge. There is the one that is natural, that is really a matter of self-preservation, and that is how God has designed this present world to keep the sins of men at bay through these punishments that come in society so that not all men act or behave as wickedly as they could, not out of some good principle within them, not out of the glory of God and love for God and love of neighbor, but simply because they don't want to be punished. But then there are another type of person in the world, that is the true believer. And the true believer receives wisdom from God, he gains in knowledge and understanding, and it causes him to live a more godly and a more righteous life. Verse 12, the righteous one considers the house of the wicked, turning the wicked to ruin. The righteous considers the house of the wicked, right? Part of uh, what we need to do a discipline in this present life is to consider the house of the wicked. Consider how it is that they build up their estate. Consider the type of lives that they live. Consider the outcome of those who live and practice such things. When the righteous one considers the house of the wicked, then ultimately he sees and understands that the wicked man will be turned into ruin. And because he does not want himself to be ruined, he doesn't want his household, his wife and children to be ruined, then he's going to turn away from those sins that are so prevalent in the household of the wicked. And this is why the Bible is filled with examples. Examples of both the righteous and the wicked. Examples of the outcome of the righteous and the outcome of the wicked, so that we can consider the house of the wicked, so that we have these clear, present, uh, biblical examples of what happens to all of those who work iniquity and deceit and who practice these things, and we see the ruin that comes upon them. Because we will be prone, like Psalm 73, to look at the prosperity of the wicked and to think that their life and the way that they live and their household is greatly to be desired. But when we consider their outcome, then we see clearly what will happen to them, and we don't want to be like them. But instead, we want to avoid the sins that come upon them. 
Proverbs chapter 14, verse 11. 1411 says, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. The house of the wicked versus the tent of the upright. The house is the better dwelling. It's the more stable. It's the one that is more luxurious, has greater comforts afforded to this present life. And when we see a house in contrast to a tent, we would prefer to live in the house than in the tent. But who is preferable in this case? Is it better to be in the house of the wicked or the tents of the righteous? Well, the tents of the righteous is better because the house of the wicked is going to be destroyed, but the tent of the righteous will flourish. Even though the righteous are in a mean and a poor state in this present life, there is an outcome, there is a future for the man of peace. Ultimately, they will flourish because the blessing of God is upon them, whether that is seen in this present life or whether that is realized and seen on the day of judgment. Those who are wicked will be destroyed. Whatever they have amassed in terms of their estates, in terms of their household, will come to ruin. But the righteous will flourish. They will flourish, again, whether that be in this life or whether that be in the life to come. 13, he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Whenever there is a man who has the means to help the poor, and yet he shuts his ear to the cry of the poor. Well, then one day he himself is going to cry, but no one is going to answer him. Their ears will be shut against him. This is what you have done as you have done, so it shall be done to you. As you have sown, so you shall also reap. You were a merciless person. You had no compassion, no tenderness. You were not moved toward your fellow man to have any compassion on him, though he's in a miserable plight, though he is in a state of poverty, and though this poor man is crying out to you for help, crying out for assistance. And here again, it cannot mean poor without any discernment, without any discrimination. We know that that's not the case. There are those who are poor, because of uh, various sins that they've committed. And of course, he's not talking about those kinds of people. But there are those who are legitimately poor and who have a legitimate need. And whenever the attention comes to us of such a person, and whenever they are crying out to help from us, we should not turn our ear against them. We should not be so jaded and hardened so as not to have compassion on such persons. And this is a real danger for us today because, sadly, in our own society, there is such a um, corruption and so much abuse that is taking place in terms of poverty and in terms of ministry to the poor. Whereas many, many people who come around and who beg for money we really shouldn't help them because a lot of them are squandering it in casinos, on alcohol, drugs, doing those kinds of things. The danger is, is because that is so prevalent that we become very hardened and jaded toward those who have legitimate needs. So we have to have discernment and wisdom, but we also need to have compassion because we don't want to be those who shut our ear to the cry of the poor. For if we do that, then when we cry out, there will be no one to answer us. When we are brought into a difficult situation, 
Maybe we are reduced to poverty. That can happen, can it? Can it be true that a person has wealth and then later in life they come into a state of poverty? Well, we can think of a very good example, and that would be Job. Job was a very wealthy man. Now, Job wasn't a man who shut his ear to the cries of the poor. We know that Job was a righteous man, and part of his righteousness would have been seen and manifested in his love and care for those who are poor. But Job was also brought and reduced to a miserable state. He lost everything that he had, and he was reduced to poverty. So that can happen to us. But ultimately, we are all poor in the sight of God. And we all have to cry out to God for help. But if we show no mercy to our fellow man, then will God show mercy to us when we cry out to him for help in the day of judgment? He, it will be without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Now, a good example of this would be Luke chapter 16. Because this actually, this exact Proverbs, proverb is fulfilled in the rich man and Lazarus. For the rich man was very aware of Lazarus. And Lazarus is a a beggar, right? He is a poor man, though it doesn't use those exact terms of him that he was a beggar. But that he's laying at his gate and that he's longing to be fed shows that he's in a state of dependence, in a state of crying out and needing the assistance of others. And does the rich man in this life have the ability to help Lazarus? He has the ability to help, but what's lacking in him? He has no compassion. There's no will. There's no mercy. There's nothing within him moving his bowels, moving his compassion to come and give assistance to this man. But then in the life to come, what happens? Their roles are reversed, and now the rich man needs the assistance of Lazarus. Luke 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides, All of this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Now, the rich man is crying out for help, but what does he get? Nothing. No help comes to him. In his time of need, in his time of torment, he cries out, and there is no answer. He received judgment without mercy because he was a man who showed no mercy to others. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Judgment will be without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. And that is the same principle that's being taught in Proverbs 21, 13. The one who shuts his ear to the poor. This is a man who has no mercy within him. If he has no mercy for his fellow man, how can the love of God dwell in that person? That's what we read this morning from 1 John chapter 4. If the love of God is in a man, it will make him be merciful to others as God has been merciful to him. So if a person is lacking in that mercy, it shows that the love of God is not in this person. He is not a redeemed man. He has not received the forgiveness of sins. And therefore, when he cries out to God on the day of judgment for God to be compassionate to him, for God to be merciful to him, God will not answer him. God will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. He will give him that which he deserves. Verse 14, a gift in secret subdues anger, and a bribe in the bosom, strong wrath. Here, the gift and the bribe, I'm not taking this as something that is evil and sinful, though bribes are typically evil and sinful. I think instead what he's talking about, and and it can be interpreted a different way, that what he's talking about is that when there is anger in a person, and whenever that anger is addressed not with like kind, not by repaying anger with anger. When we repay anger with anger, what typically happens to that man's fury? It intensifies it. It makes it even greater and greater. It burns hotter and hotter. But instead of anger, if we give to him a gift in secret, right? if we give to him some sign or some token of love, of friendship, something that's seeking to placate and to uh, put water on that anger, then it turns it away. It subdues it in a good and proper way. And there are examples of this in the Bible, such as Jacob and Esau. When Jacob was going and was going to meet his brother Esau, what did he send before him in order to meet Esau on the way? He sent various gifts to his brother Esau, And when Esau came to him, then he wasn't angry. They had a good relationship. He was friendly. He was kind toward him. Also, when David was burning with wrath against Nabal, he had anger within him, and he intended to go and to slaughter Nabal and all of the men of his house. And Nabal's wife, Abigail, sent gifts to David in order to subdue his anger so that he would not shed innocent blood. So this can be taken in a good and in a positive way. Now, it also could be in a negative way, right? If someone is giving bribes, if the judge is justly angry and is going to execute this person because of their crime, and yet a bribe is given, then that righteous anger within him may be subdued so that justice is thwarted in the land. In that case, it would be bad and it would be evil. But in the other case, in the case of Jacob with Esau and Abigail with David, it can be seen in a positive way as a way in which we deal with men. Not that we're trying to manipulate them, but this is how you behave in a gracious and in a kind way, in a way that shows prudence and wisdom in our dealings with one another. If we've given offense to someone, then there's nothing wrong with seeking to 
show uh, our, how grieved we are over this by giving them some kind of token of our love, of our kindness, of our affection, just like with the men. Whenever you do something, you know, when you upset your wife, there's nothing wrong with buying them flowers. I like to butter them up a little bit. You've got to soften them. That way, when you come and you say you're sorry, they're going to be more readily to forgive you, right, because of this token. And that's not a bribe. It's just being smart, right, <laughs> instead of being a big dope. That's the way that we ought to be in life. Or vice versa, right? If the women do something to the men, okay, get us a steak, right? Something like that. You know that that's what the men want. They want a big old piece of steak, and it's going to soften them up, and then they'll be more prone and ready. They'll be in a, a better frame of mind to be forgiving and to reconcile and to do those kinds of things. This is the way we are. This is the way people behave in this. No one is a robot. Not, none of us are robots. We need to use proper prudence and wisdom in our dealings with one another. If anyone gets flowers this week, it's because of me, or if you get a steak, then I should get credit and I should get a, a portion of that as well. Okay, verse 15. The exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but it is terror to the workers of iniquity. The exercise of justice is joy to the righteous. When justice is executed in the land, when murderers are put to death, when people who commit crimes are punished, are the righteous upset? Are they wringing their hands? Are they crying and boo-hooing when they see these things? No, they're rejoicing because they see that it's good for murderers to be executed. It's good for people who commit these kinds of crimes to be punished for their crimes because they're not going to be a menace and a threat to society. It's going to create a better society, a more peaceful society, a place where we can thrive, where we can worship God, where we can raise our families. So when there are proper laws and proper punishments for those laws, and those laws are being enforced, and those punishments are being inflicted upon the transgressors of the law, then that is joy for the righteous. They have nothing to be afraid of because they're not breaking the law. They're following the law. They're abiding by the law. They're doing those things that are good and right. So it's not something that's upsetting to them. But the one who is working iniquity, it terrorizes them. Because now there's greater fear, there's greater terror that they're going to get found out and caught. And if they do, they're going to face justice. They're going to be punished. Instead of getting a slap on the wrist, there's going to actually be some teeth to the law, and they're going to get exactly what they deserve. 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 17. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. It says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn, every, he must turn away from every evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Generally speaking, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Typically, in the land, in whatever society we live, if we're doing what is good, what is good and right, Christians should be the most wholesome citizens of the land, the best citizens of the land. And typically, if that is the case, then we have no reason to fear those who are in authority. However, even if that isn't the case, even if the government is punishing those who are doing good and right, then you have nothing to fear because you have a clean conscience before God and you know that ultimately God will deliver you and that God is not against you, right? God is against murderers. He's against thieves. He's against extortioners. And if the government is against us because we're thieves and murderers, then God is against us as well. But God is not against those who worship Christ, who live a godly and a righteous, upright life. If the government is against us for living in that way, well, then we can have a good, clean conscience because we know that God is not against us, but that God is for us. Also, Romans 13, Romans 13, verses 1 to 7 in verses 1 to 7, he's talking about the role of the proper authority. And there in verse 3, he says, Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for your good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. That is the same as our verse in Proverbs 21, 15. Right? The exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but terror to the workers of iniquity. Verse 16. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. The one who wanders from the way of understanding. This is the wisdom of God found in the word of God. The wisdom of God that makes one wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus and teaches us how to be reconciled to God and then how to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. A person who wanders away from that, who does not heed the gospel of Jesus Christ, who does not listen to the word of God, well, he's going to remain dead in his trespasses and sins. He will not be reconciled to God. And then whenever he dies one day, he will rest in the assembly of the dead. He will not be counted amongst the righteous. His name will not be found in the book of life, but instead he will be allotted his portion in the lake of fire with all of the assembly of the dead. When Christ separates men on the day of judgment, the sheep from the goats, he will be counted and he will be placed there among the goats. And this would be like Genesis twenty-five seventeen, When it speaks of Ishmael and Ishmael died, it says that he was gathered 
to his people. And who are those people that he was gathered to? To the assembly of the dead, to the wicked, right? To those who were wicked and unbelieving, like Cain and like others before him, this is who he was gathered to. And so it is with all of those who refuse to believe the gospel of Christ. They turn away from the way of understanding. They reject the only way of reconciliation. And therefore, when they die, they will rest in the assembly of the dead. They will be there for all eternity. Verse 17, he who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. Here, the key is loves pleasure, loves wine and oil. This is one who indulges in these things. Not that there isn't a proper place for some uh, lawful pleasures or a proper place for oil and wine and the consumption of those things. But here, it is without moderation. So there is a place to enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. And enjoying life with the wife that you love includes finding joy and happiness and pleasure in this present life and doing things with them. But if you love that in in a sinful way, in an excessive way, in an indulgent way, then ultimately you will come to ruin, to poverty. You will become a poor man because you cannot exercise it with moderation. And you're given to those things, so you spend all of your time and money on these kinds of pleasures that a person may have a proclivity to. And this is how it often is in this life. People have difficulty enjoying even those lawful things in life with moderation, but they're given to them. So there's nothing wrong with certain things. There's nothing wrong with a person enjoying, say, to go fishing. This is a pleasure, and many people find joy in that. But if you become consumed with it, and you spend all your time and money on such hobbies and activities, you're going to become a poor man. Because every spare dime you get, what are you going to do? You're going to go buy the latest, greatest gadget that you have to have that's going to help you Catch fish, though men have been catching fish for 6,000 years, for many, many years without all these things, but you're going to have to have it, and you're going to spend all of your money on it, and you're going to become poor. But if a person exercises these things in moderation, a proper way, then there's a proper balance. They know how to do this and how to do that in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and not a detriment uh, to one's self. Then ultimately as well, it leads to poverty in terms of spiritual things, in terms of spiritual things. People who are just consumed with fulfilling pleasures and pursuing the pleasures of this life, they, that can lead to poverty in this world, that they don't have any money, but ultimately it leads to spiritual poverty because if they're only pursuing the pleasures of this life, then they're not pursuing the pleasures of the life to come. They're not pursuing eternal life and spiritual blessings that we must receive from our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 18, the wicked is a ransom for the righteous and the treacherous is in the place of the upright. Here, God will at times cause the evil and the evil that is intended to fall upon the righteous, he will cause it to descend upon the wicked. 
right? So that in a sense, the wicked becomes a ransom for the righteous. In that the wicked takes the place of the righteous man. And instead of the righteous man having some evil come upon his head, it descends instead on the head of the wicked and the treacherous. He takes the place, right? He is punished in his, uh, in his place. A good example of this would be Haman and Mordecai. In a sense, Haman became a ransom, or he was, uh, this evil came upon him instead of Mordecai. He intended it for Mordecai, but God turned it against him and his life was put in place of Mordecai. So that instead of Mordecai hanging from the gallows that were built by Haman, who was the one that swung from them? It was Haman himself. And in that way, God turned it toward Mordecai's favor. And God can do this in this life. He doesn't mean ransom in the sense of ransoming them eternally like Jesus Christ has done for us. In that sense, Christ has been given, in that way, the righteous one has been given for the unrighteous to ransom us to God so that our sins are forgiven. But in this case, it is the wicked who is given as a ransom for the righteous. This, as God turns things in the favor of the righteous against the wicked and the evil that they intended comes upon their own head. Verse 19, better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. Here, the desert land. No one wants to live in a desert where there's, it's hot all the time, there's no water, there's no trees or grass. There's nothing to eat, right? There's only snakes and scorpions and all sorts of deadly creatures that want to bite you all the time. No one wants to live in a desert land, right? This is obvious. You don't find, well, actually, Saudi Arabia, you do find one there. But no one in their right mind wants to live in a desert land. This is contrary to happiness because all of the, none of the comforts and necessities of life are found there. And yet here, the prophet is saying it's better to live in that condition than to have to live with a contentious and vexing wife. A wife who is constantly contending against you, vexing you all the time, is going to make your life so miserable that it would be preferable to live without all the comforts of life, to be in a very harsh climate, a harsh physical climate, than to have to live in this relational uh, desert where it's going to be nothing but contention and vexing all the time. We remember Proverbs 19, verse 13. A foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. And then verse 21, 9, it is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Then here again, better to live in a desert land than to live with a contentious and vexing woman. Now, again, in all of these, though it's stated explicitly in terms of the husband to the wife, it implicitly, it has to be a mutual relationship, Right. There are men who are contentious. There are men who are vexing. There are men who are worthless. And for a woman to have to live with such a man, it would be better for her to live in a desert land. It would be better for her to live on the corner of the roof. So he's simply stating, though it's stated typically of the man toward the woman, or the woman uh, is the cause of contention there in the relationship, he doesn't mean that it's always the woman's fault. It's mutual. Right, And it can be that the woman is a contentious, vexing woman, 
who makes life miserable on the man, but it also can be that the man is contentious and vexing and makes life miserable upon the woman, right? Whatever the, it is, the point that he's making is that marriage and the relationship between husband and wife, which should be mutually beneficial, it should increase our comfort and our enjoyment in this present life when it is properly being practiced. The husband fulfilling his duties and obligations to the wife and the wife fulfilling her duties and obligations to the husband and both of them seeking to live at peace with all men. And when we live at peace with all men, where does that begin? In the home, in this relationship between husband and wife. And when both husband and wife are loving each other properly, properly, living at peace with one another, seeking harmony between each other, then it's going to create a a household that is flourishing, that is wonderful. It's going to have many comforts and blessings that accompany this life. But if one of these is lacking, whether it's the husband or the wife, and instead of harmony and peace, there's constant strife, contention, vexing, it's going to make everyone miserable. The husband will be miserable. The wife will be miserable. The children will be miserable. Anyone that comes into the house is going to be miserable. It's just not going to be good for anyone, right? It's going to be bad. So the point being, in our homes, in our marriages, we should seek peace. We should promote harmony. We should promote love, right? We should do and fulfill our obligations and duties toward our spouse and do whatever we can to make the home as harmonious, as happy, as peaceful as we can possibly make it. This is our duty and obligation to one another and before God. Our faith should be practiced first in the home. That is the primary place where our faith will be practiced and our love that we have for God and for the saints should first be practiced toward our wife, and toward our children. And if it's not being practiced there, then whatever we're doing out here, we're hypocrites. We are big, fat, there it goes, big, fat hypocrites if we practice it toward others, but we're not doing it in the home. That's where it should begin, in the home, as the foundation of all of the Christian life, in our duties to our fellow man. Then verse 20. There is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. Here, the wise, they have many blessings within their home. Treasure and oil are found there, and that can refer either to those physical blessings that God gives in this life, but also to the spiritual blessings that God gives in this life. And the wise man has both. He has both. He has many blessings from God. He has his life. He has life, breath, and all things. Whatever God gives him in terms of possessions, all of this comes from God. And it's there, it is within his home, and it shows the blessing of God upon his life. But primarily, it is the spiritual that shows and reveals God's favor for a man. When the man has these things in the wise house, he knows how to store them. He knows how to invest them. He knows how to use them. He knows how to pass them on to future generations. They are a blessing, a heritage from the Lord. But a foolish man who has these things, say he's a foolish man, but he had a wise father. And his wise father was prudent. He was wise. He used and he invested his money wisely. And he left a good inheritance to this foolish son. What will that foolish son do? He's going to swallow it up. 
He'll burn through it so quickly because he does not know how to properly handle and manage these things, but he just wants to have a good time. And eventually, he'll squander all of that in loose, riotous living, just like the prodigal son did before his conversion. Before his conversion, he received his inheritance, and how long did it take him to burn through that? Not very long at all. He squandered it all because he could not manage and hold that treasure in a proper way. Also, we know this happens many times with people who uh, get rich on the lottery or through gambling. They get all this money, and what happens to them in just a matter of years? They're bankrupt again. Also, professional athletes. Many professional athletes end up bankrupt later in life, though through the course of their career, they had millions and millions and millions of dollars in earnings. And this is because they're very foolish people. They do not know how to handle those things in a way that is pleasing to God and that is beneficial to themselves. They could establish a heritage and legacy for many, many, many generations, and yet they don't know how to handle those things. And this also is true spiritually. When a son is a fool, but he had a wise and godly father, his godly father gave to him treasures and oil. He gave to him the blessings and the knowledge of the gospel. And yet, if that son is a fool, what will he do with all of those blessings? He'll completely squander them. He'll completely swallow them up, not in a good way, but he will squander them, and whatever was there to his advantage in his upbringing will be lost, and then he will come under condemnation. May that not be true of us, but instead, may we use both the material and the physical blessings that God gives to us, but primarily those spiritual blessings that he gives to us. May those things be found in an abundance in the dwelling of the wise, and then may we pass this heritage down to our children and to our children's children, to the thousands of generations of those who love the Lord. This is what our prayer and our desire should be. So with that, we'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. And a couple of things I wanted to mention uh, today. First, uh, Brandon and Gabby are not here with us today, and they're having some major uh, plumbing problems at their house that they believe that one of the pipes is collapsed underneath the, pa uh, underneath the concrete uh, in the home, so it's going to take ripping out the floor and, and fixing that. So they've had some real problems with that. So please pray uh, for them. Then also, uh, it's Madison's birthday, so happy birthday, Madison uh, Stone, and uh, we're very glad about that. And also, Jude, his birthday's tomorrow. So happy birthday to Jude as well. Uh, he'll be turning nine. You can ask Madison how old she'll be. She'll tell you herself. Then uh, one last, also we have a friend, Marley, who's here with us for uh, about a week or 10 days total, but she got here on Friday. And she's from San Antonio and will be staying with our family. She's friends with Anna. This is one of the blessings, though the whole uh, COVID, the China flu, it was a big, you know, caused much heartache on many of us. One of the blessings that came out of it was Anna's friendship with Marley, and they've become very good friends over the years, and so she came up to spend some time uh, with our family, and we'll be here for about 10 days, and so she's with us, and we'll be here next week as well, and it's good to have you with us today. So let's, with that, we'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are grateful, Lord, for the many kindnesses and blessings that you give to us. Lord, the treasures and the oil 
Lord, you have poured out upon us in abundance. And Lord, we know that those things belong in the house and in the dwelling of the wise. Lord, this is what we desire more than anything else. Lord, not physical blessings, not material blessings that come in this life. But Lord, we desire those spiritual blessings. Lord, the treasures that accompany those upon whom your favor is found. The blessings that come to us through Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins and faith and repentance and godliness. Lord, adoption into your family. Lord, the blessings of eternal rewards and of the ultimate glorification of our body and soul. And Lord, we want this treasure to be found in our homes. Lord, this knowledge of salvation. May we guard it, Lord, with our very life, seeing that without this knowledge, there can be no forgiveness of sins and no reconciling, reconciling with you. And so, Lord, we pray that it would pass from us and to our children and to our grandchildren and for many generations, Lord, among our families, that there would be true believers that you raise up, Lord, men and women of God who love you and who fear you and who walk in your ways. Lord, may there be much good fruit produced from our families, Lord, for countless generations. And Lord, we pray that you bless, Lord, our efforts and Lord, what we are seeking to instill in our households. Lord, that you might bless it with an abundance that will, Lord, cause us to just marvel at your kindness and your goodness, Lord, toward us. Father, we are very grateful today for Madison and for Jude. Lord, we thank you for the life that you've given to both of them. Lord, we pray that your blessing would be upon them, Lord, in this upcoming year, that you would help them to grow in their faith, Lord, that they might love you and that they might walk with you, Lord, that they might uh, have true understanding of your will. So, Lord, we thank you for your, the life that you've given to them, and we pray for your blessing to be upon them. Lord, as well, we're grateful for Marley, and we thank you for her uh, attendance with us today and for the time to be with her this week with our family. We pray for your blessing on her and upon her mother and father and her brothers as well. Lord, we just ask that you help them to continue and to persevere, and we thank you for their faith and for their friendship, and just pray that you would continue to cause your grace and mercy to abound to them. And then, Lord, we pray for the Smith family today. We ask, uh, Lord, that uh, the sickness that they've been dealing with, that you would help them to overcome it, but also this uh, problem with their sewer and their plumbing, Lord, we just ask that it would be able to be fixed without it being a great expense upon them and that their house and the functioning of it might be brought back to a proper order so that they can have the comforts and conveniences, Lord, of, of their home. So, Lord, be with them today, and we pray for your comfort uh, and your grace and mercy to be on them. Lord, as well, with those who were absent today, we pray that you bless them, and, Lord, that you might bring them back to us. And Lord, be with us today as we go from here. Lord, help us this week to walk in your ways. And it is in Christ in that we pray. Amen.